Chapter 18 of The Great Sinners of the Bible This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Great Sinners of the Bible By Lewis Albert Banks Chapter 18 Poetic Justice As Illustrated in the Tragic Story of Adonai Bezek as I have done, so God hath requited me. Judges 1, 7 Adonai Bezek was a cruel old man. He lived by the sword, and he perished by it. For a long time, nobody could stand against him in battle. Everything went his way. Victory after victory crowned his banners. The story of the wars of Adonai Bezek have never been written. We have only the little glimpse into them from this statement of his, that seventy kings that had been captured by him had been put to torture, and had been humiliated and mortified, by having their thumbs and their great toes cut off, and by being made to pick up crumbs under his table, as one might feed a hungry dog. The imagination can easily supply the long tales of war and ravage that lie in the darkness of oblivion behind those threescore and ten kings and their cruel humiliation. But Adonai Bezek's time was coming. There came a day when the lucky star in which he boasted forsook him, and the stars in their courses seemed to fight against him. He was captured, and very naturally his captors, Remembering the stories of the peculiar torture to which he had been accustomed to put his captives, stories that have given him an inglorious fame throughout all the neighboring nations, submitted him to the same humiliation. Adonai Bezek, with all his savagery, must have had the philosophic temperament, for he recognizes at once the poetic justice in his punishment. He does not complain when he is himself brutally tortured in the same way in which he had treated others. With very clear discrimination, he recognizes that his sinful life had not only been a warfare against his fellow men, but a sin against God. He sees clearly that in this punishment, which comes to him at the hand of his captors, they are not the chief factors. It is coming from the hand of God, as I have done says the despairing old king, and it seems to have been the last utterance of his life, for the next sentence tells of his death, so God hath requited me. I think there is something striking in the consensus of opinion that a justice which meets out punishment of the same peculiar kind as the man's sin should be called poetic justice. If a man in his youth has been mean and ungrateful toward his parents, and treated them harshly, and years afterward, when his own hair is getting gray, his children turn against him with hard and selfish hearts, people say it is poetic justice. If a man is miserly, and greedy, and dishonest in business, gathering money without caring how he gets it, unscrupulous in his methods, and some competitor, equally unscrupulous, but with more cunning, circumvents him, and robs him of his ill-gotten gains, 
people are inclined to smile and say it is poetic justice. We say so because we recognize that poetic justice is ideal justice and that this is a rare thing in this world among men. But justice is always poetic with God. God does not have a judgment day every week, but at last there shall be meted out poetic justice to every man and woman in the world. This tells as truly on the side of goodness and its rewards as in the punishment of evil. God gives a man blessings in heart and soul after the kind of his deeds of righteousness. I shall never forget the glow of supreme joy and comfort I saw recently in the glistening eyes and lighted face of a man of nearly fourscore who was telling me about his coming to this country when only a youth, leaving the dear old mother who had been a faithful Christian mother to him in England. He came over here and was lonesome and homesick. And in that hour of homesickness, he gave his heart to Christ and became a very happy Christian. With joyous face, he told me how he wrote home to his mother about it and how happy she was and how she prized those letters and how proud she was of them and how, when she came to die, she showed her great love for him and her appreciation of him by making a dying request that all the letters from her boy in the new land should be put as a pillow under her head in her coffin. And all the years since, as that man has gone on doing his work in the world, growing old like the palm tree described in the Bible, his heart has been given courage and his soul has been refreshed by the joy with which he had comforted his mother's heart. Be sure that this is God's world, and there is no such thing as chance. It is no gambler's luck with which we are dealing. We are not throwing dice with fate in these human lives of ours. It is no haphazard at which we are playing. It is a world of cause and effect, a world where like produces like, a world where we shall receive according to our conduct. We have here a lesson for every one of us. God is no respecter of persons. He does not have one standard for the treatment of Adonai Bezik and another for us. The great principles of right and wrong run through the universe like threads through a bolt of cloth. They are the same in one age as in another. A sowing of envy and jealousy will produce strife and murder as surely now as in the days of Cain. A seed time of hard-heartedness and stiff-necked resistance to God's commandment will still further harden the heart and prevent the day of repentance as surely in our day as in the time of Pharaoh and the plagues in Egypt. Cruelty will breed cruelty and perpetuate it as certainly in Cleveland as in the empire of Adonai Bezek. We should remember that no sin is a separate and individual thing, having no relation to the other portions of our career. Every sin is a seed that is self-perpetuating and produces still further evil harvest to sow, still more widely the spirit of anarchy and rebellion against God. There is this other very important thought in our text. Our sin is not merely bad policy, or mistake of judgment, or even a wrong done against our fellow men. It is a sin against God. Sin is contempt for our Creator, our Father, our Preserver, our Judge. I think there is a vast amount of teaching in our time which rather fosters the idea 
that sin is more bad policy than anything else, and the keen edge is lost off the truth that sin is a crime against God that merits and requires punishment. Of course, it is true that sin is unwise, that it is a bad policy, true that drunkenness wastes physical strength, unbalances the mind, depraves the heart, true that greed despoils all the finer feelings of the soul and brutalizes the manhood and womanhood, true that lust dethrones the spiritual and puts the reins of life into the hands of the animal, true that falsehood demoralizes all the strength of the personality and lets loose the mental and moral nature into chaos, true that the sinner can never tell when conscience will rise up and betray him, even in this world, to destruction. But while all that is true, it is a smaller part of the ruin in which sin works. Sin is crime against God. It is a wrong against the moral nature itself. It is a violation of the very law of our being and makes necessary a judgment day and a time of punishment. Old Adonai Bezek was thoroughly scriptural in his idea that his captors were, though entirely unconscious, no doubt, themselves, God's agents, who were requiting him according to his deeds for his evil ways. Judgment is as surely coming for the sinner today as to this hoary-headed sinner of ancient times. How strange that we should go on sinning against God as though no record were being kept of our doings. Yet there is a double record being kept. First, a record is being kept in our own memories, in the very fiber of our being. A record is being treasured up there that will be all the more legible when the body shall be left behind, like an old house, and we stand unsheltered before God. But there is another record being kept in the memory of God, a record which is absolutely perfect and from which there can be no appeal. One day a young boy came home very angry with a schoolmate about something that had happened on the playground. He told his sister about it, and the more he thought and talked of it, the angrier he grew. He began to say terribly harsh, bitter, and unreasonable things about his comrade. Some of the things he said the sister knew were not true, but he was too angry and excited to weigh his words. She listened for a moment and then said very gently, Would you dare tell God that, Ralph? The boy paused as if someone had struck him. He felt the rebuke implied in her words, and he realized how wickedly and untruthfully he had spoken. No, I wouldn't tell God that, he said with a red face. Then I wouldn't tell it to anybody, said the sister. And yet we are telling God every angry, unreasonable, wicked thing we say. We are telling him every unholy purpose we form, every stubborn resistance to his will. What a cruel treasury we may gather for ourselves in this way. We have suggested to us here that we are judged by our deeds and not by our impulses or our wishes. Some people deceive their own hearts by imagining that there is, in some vague, undefined way, virtue in their hours of daydreams when they have visions of goodness, which, alas, are never fulfilled. 
Many people are like the son mentioned in the gospel parable, who, when his father commanded him to go and work in his vineyard, replied promptly, I go, sir, but who never went. There was absolutely no value in that boy's complacent impulse to do what his father wanted, but who, when the time came for action, chose to go selfishly on his own path. So many people now are answering God, I go, sir, but they never go. Many read a book which stirs their emotions in regard to some misery of the poor, and they seem to hear the voice of God in it, saying to them, Go, heal the heartache, relieve the distress, brighten the sky of those whose lives are dark and cheerless. And they say promptly, I go, sir. But they wipe their tears and their emotion passes, and their lives go on as selfishly as ever. Again, some sudden disaster or some striking punishment following iniquity startles the community, and many people read it with blanched faces and trembling hearts as they picture to themselves the murder or the suicide or the bankruptcy or the shame and disgrace or the heartbreaking agony that has followed like a nemesis in the wake of some man's or some woman's sin. Conscience rises up and says, He was no greater sinner than you. He thought his sin would never be punished, but his judgment day came and yours hastens. Rise up at once and repent of your sins, and turn from your wicked ways. And the soul answers, I go, sir, but the emotion dies away. Conscience is thrust into the background. The world comes in like a flood, and no real repentance comes from it. I know that I am not speaking in riddles to you. I am not telling you things you do not understand. Some of you, as you have listened, have seen your own portrait in the rude and simple sketches I have drawn. In God's name, do not let this appeal go the way of all the rest. You have been aroused many times before to the exceeding sinfulness of your sin and have promised yourself to repent, only to fall the deeper into the mire. Put every good impulse into action now. Incarnate your good wishes into deeds. Rise up by the grace of God to repent of your sin and to cry out to Jesus Christ for refuge. In him is your hope. Not because he can change the character of sin, but because he took your load of sin on his own shoulders and suffered in your stead. And if you accept him as your savior, God will impute your sin to him. He will transfer your guilt to Christ's account and you may be pardoned and forgiven. The sense of guilt will be taken out of your soul and you will go forth free and cleansed to lead a new life of righteousness and peace. No matter how hard a place you are in, Christ is able to reach you there and lead you out of your distress. Samuel H. Hadley, Superintendent of the Old Jerry McAuley Water Street Mission, New York, now one of the purest and noblest of men, was once a poor drunkard in the gutter. When he had pawned his last thing and the alternative faced him of becoming a tramp or jumping in the river, he found his way to the mission, and this is his recollection of the prayer which Jerry McAuley offered over his bowed head. Dear Savior, 
Won't you look down in pity on this poor soul? He needs your help, Lord. He can't get along without it. Blessed Jesus, this sinner has got himself into a bad hole. Won't you help him out? Then, with Jerry's hand upon his head, Hadley tried to pray for himself. Dear Jesus, can you help me? The gloom that had filled him gave way to a precious feeling of safety and strength, and he has lived a glorious life ever since. There was a scriptural warrant for that prayer of Macaulay's. Does not David say, He inclined unto me and heard me cry. He brought me up also out of a horrible pit, out of the miry clay, and set my feet upon a rock, and established my goings. And he hath put a new song in my mouth, even praise unto our God. He will do all that for you if you will give him your hand and your heart. End of chapter 18 Read by Quincy Minor, Austin, Texas, May 4th, 2022